We've already mentioned Turkey and Syria this morning. Let me read you a couple of rescue stories from the Washington Post just yesterday. Rescuers continued to pull earthquake survivors out of the rubble in southern Turkey on Saturday. Even as rescue efforts ended in northwest Syria and relief workers across the affected regions began to turn their focus to recovering bodies and providing shelter to the displaced. But a family of five was among those pulled from the rubble on the sixth day after the devastating quakes. Defying the odds and providing hope that more people could still be found alive amid the wreckage. Rescue teams in Nurdagi, in the southern Turkish region of Gaziantep, detected a mother and daughter alive under the rubble after 129 hours. Turkish news outlet Habertuk reported, the teams extracted the pair as well as the family's two other children and their father. Four-year-old Sengul Karabakak four-year-old was pulled from the rubble in Gaziantep about 132 hours after the earthquake. Footage on Turkish TV showed her blinking into the sunlight, alert and alive, as rescuers carried her on a stretcher into a waiting ambulance. If you're saved this morning, Your story of rescue is greater than those. These people were alive and were rescued and continued to live. If you were saved this morning, you weren't under rubble. You were dead and buried spiritually. And God, by his grace, gave you faith and resurrected your soul to himself. This is salvation. Hebrews chapter 2 says, this salvation is a great salvation. For Jesus Christ, in Hebrews 1, made purification for sins and then sat down at the right hand of majesty. This great salvation is a salvation that is eternal and is unending. It is greater, as incredible as those rescue stories are, it is greater than being saved from earthquake rubble. Is your salvation great to you this morning? Is your salvation great to you this morning? No doubt for this young four-year-old Sengul, who will have a lot of recovery, no doubt, physical and emotional. The reality of being pulled out from the rubble will dim. But Sengul will still have a great story. Sengul will continue to live because Sengul was rescued from the rubble. 
If you are a Christian this morning, you have a great salvation. You have been rescued from death to life, yet we each have a spiritual defect. We each have a spiritual defect because our flesh desires for self-rule and dims the greatness of our salvation. We forget. We will walk through a great story of salvation this morning that is in the middle of the spiritually defective rule, self-rule of King Saul. Please pray with me. God, it is only through your spirit that you could remind us, renew us, and revive us. Please do so through the gospel of Jesus Christ to the glory of your name, Father. Amen. As we go to 1 Samuel 13, it begins... Depending on the translation that you have, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men. It's, it's a difficult verse. Almost every translation has a different translation, to be honest, of that verse. Things happened in the, trans, in the transcribing of the Hebrew. It just became difficult. But what we can see from this is a reality you need to hear. This was significantly into Saul's reign. At least a year, maybe more. And we're going to see in these next three chapters the rise-ish of Saul and the fall of Saul. We're going to see that the spiritual defect of his self-rule is this. He thought that to sacrifice is better than to obey. To sacrifice is better than to obey. See, King Saul was a man of action, but not of obedience. He thought he knew the right way, but that right way wasn't actually hearing and obeying the word of the Lord. We'll see it as we read these chapters that Saul has this thing about waiting to obey. If we go back to last week's sermon, guess what? Saul still has not taken care of business in his hometown and kicked out the Philistines. Saul waits to obey, but Saul rushes to sacrifice. He will not wait on Samuel. Why does Saul wait to obey and rush to sacrifice? He fears circumstances that are out of his control. He makes rash vows, even to the detriment and threat of his own son. He makes excuses and blames others. But I did obey. But I did sacrifice. It's the people you gave me who dot, dot, dot. So Saul has lots of self-preserving regrets, but no real repentance. He's like, 
linoleum. Slick, fake, and just linoleum. There's no true heart spirituality, wholehearted devotion to the Lord. So as you'll see, the Lord will remove his blessing from Saul and tear the kingdom from him. I hope you've made it to 1 Samuel 13. I'm going to read these three chapters straight through. The drama of this story can't be summarized, can't be missed. Starting in verse 2 of chapter 13. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. Jonathan had gone back to their hometown. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So Saul has, has gathered an army at this point. Jonathan defeated the garrisons of the, Phil- the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Jonathan takes care of business, but Saul had not. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear! And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops. Like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But remember, this is at least a year, if not longer, than Samuel had originally appointed. So Saul said, sorry, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince 
over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them, stayed at Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Very quickly, understand this. The Philistines had their boot on Israel's neck. They were numbered as sand on the seashore. The same sort of promise that was given to Abraham. The same sort of promise that said, your people, my people will go out and others will fear you. Because you were mine. But there is this reversal that has happened. Now the Philistines are as the sand of the seashore. And Israel is hiding in caves and cisterns. Afraid. They don't even have weapons. They're tools they have to take to the Philistines to have them sharpen them. They don't have weapons to fight back with. They don't even have tools that they can sharpen on their own to farm with. Israel, in effect, belonged to the Philistines. But one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave, great place for a king, at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli. Ah, this family comes back into the picture. The priests of the Lord in Shiloh, and this guy was wearing an ephod. If you remember from the beginning of 1 Samuel, Eli's sons were killed because of their disobedience, because of their spiritual abuse. And Phinehas, one of those sons, his wife gave birth to a son named Ichabod. Ichabod means the glory has left Israel. And now Ichabod's brother has a son, and this son is wearing a priestly ephod, posing as a priest for Saul. But the glory has left Israel. The people did not know what, where Jonathan, that Jonathan had gone. 
within the, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. Picture two large teeth. That's what the Hebrew picture gives us. Two rocky crags. The name of the one was Bozes. The name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison, and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who was gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, apparently there were some turncoats in the ranks, they had gone up with them and into the camp. Even these turncoats also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim were heard, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So after Saul threatened to curse them, none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. 
But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. He had been killing Philistines. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. And his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be it, though it be it Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then Saul said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. And the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from, the pursuing, from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Let's move on down to chapter 15. And Samuel said to Saul, 
The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Quick pause. God rescues Israel out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They're following the cloud of fire by night and the cloud by day. Pillar of fire and cloud by day. They have manna given to them. And then water comes out of the rock. They are still a refugee people. Cared for by God, but we were talking this morning probably around 2 million people wandering through the Sinai on their way to the promised land. And Amalek shows up. No one else has fought against Israel to this point. And Amalek comes and attacks Israel soon after escaping slavery in Egypt. This is the time when Moses takes his staff and God tells him, Go up on the hill and raise your staff. And two others come and hold up his arms because whenever he lowered his staff, Amalek would win. Whenever he raised his staff, Israel would win. After Israel's victory, Moses said, the Lord is my banner. And this is the promise that God made about Amalek. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Exodus 17, 14. They had sought to blot out the memory of Yahweh. Yahweh says, not so fast. Your sin will be judged. We return to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Samuel says to Saul, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them into lame. 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek And lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you, Kenites, you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Saul was angry. Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord, 
all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and, and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agog, the king of Amalek, and I devoted the Am Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For Saul, rebellion is the sin is as the sin of divination and presumption is an iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the lord he has also rejected you from being king Saul said to Samuel I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandments of the lord and your words because I I feared the people and obeyed their voice now, therefore, please pardon my sin. Return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, Saul said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. 
And Agag came to him cheerfully, said, Surely the bitterness of death is past? And Samuel said, As your sword has made women, child, women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Talked about a bit last week. We have the spiritual defect of self-rule. Like Saul, our flesh says, no, it's better to sacrifice than to obey. It's better to be active. It's better to be doing stuff. It's better to achieve my own righteousness in some way, appease my soul, do good things perhaps, than to obey the word of the Lord. So we wait to obey. The Spirit, as Nick prayed earlier, the Spirit convicts us of sin. I'm talking to Christians here. The Spirit convicts us of sin and we coddle it. We wait. We don't ask the Spirit to help us put it to death. We walk in the shadows, receiving the light, but still walking in a degree of shame, loving our sin, excusing it, like Saul. We wait to obey, but we rush to sacrifice. I'll be my own savior. I'll read my Bible more. I'll, I'll fast. I'll pray. I'll make sure I'm in church. I, I got to do these things. Lord, I'm, I'm giving up all of this for you. Yet circumstances test our hearts. And we fear. Because we know ultimately we have a failure to self-save. We make rash vows. I will do this. I will do that. That will make God happy with me which leads to excuses and blames but I did obey I know that there's this part of God's word that I'm following it just makes common sense to make this choice common sense does not trump the truth of the word but I, but I sacrificed look at all that I've given up and the people around me, I'm not as bad as them. I could count up like 10 or 15 more people at church that I know are worse than me. And so this conversation goes on inside and our, our flesh loves to feed it. Yeah, keep doing, doing, doing. You can make it happen. You're your own king, your own queen. And then when things fall apart, 
when we get caught perhaps. Things fail us. Lots of regrets perhaps, but maybe no real repentance. We could take from Saul and Samuel a warning. Persistence in self-rule may show who your true king really is. The one in whom you put your faith to try to calm your fears. And Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That is a gospel warning. Jesus has come to provide purification for sins. And there is no great salvation away from him. Yet if we continue to persist in bowing to ourselves rather than bowing to him, it may just be that we will drift away and show that we were never actually his. What do people like us who so often feel half-hearted need? We need a real gospel. We need true good news, and we find that in these three chapters. Did you catch the statement of real judgment when I paused to talk about Amalek? To our ears, this sounds like ethnic cleansing. How could God do something like this? Well, God says, this is why I will do something like this. I'm perfectly just. And I made a promise that this would happen. This is judgment. Let me read something from Tim Chester on this. He says, this is an act of judgment against sin. Destruction will come to the Amalekites, not because they are Amalekites, but because they are sinners. In a sense, this should alarm us, not because it is unfair, but because it is fair. And because we are not Amalekites, we are sinners. Their destruction is a picture of what humanity deserves and faces from God. When judgment comes, nothing, nothing is left. So this makes the story no less alarming for it means it is a picture of God's intent against all sin and therefore against all humanity. The fate of the Amalekites is not an exception from a bygone era. It is a pointer to the coming day of judgment. If we are inclined to minimize divine judgment, it is perhaps because we are inclined to minimize human sin, our sin. And that was Saul's problem. Church, if we are to have a revival, personal and corporate, in the greatness of our salvation, it begins with a realization from the Holy Spirit of the greatness of our sin. That deserves real judgment. And I ask this morning, Spirit, please fall on us in this way. A real gospel includes real judgment. 
We look for Christ in the Old Testament as we should. But look to the Old Testament to understand judgment as well. Real judgment leads to real regret. What does Saul say? Sorry, what does the word of the Lord say in 1510? I regret that I have made Saul king. In 1535, Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Yet sandwiched between those two regrets, statements of God, in 1529, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. We should ask the question, does God regret or does God not regret? I'd like to read to you from John Piper's providence on this very issue. My assumption is that the author of 1 Samuel 15 did not slip up and contradict those two verses, those three verses. These statements are too close together and too similar to think that this is not intentional. The key, I think, is to notice that in verse 29, Samuel says, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. I take this to mean that God may regret, but not like a man, not the way humans regret. Human regret is based partly on a lack of foreknowledge, but divine regret is not. For God declares the end from the beginning, according to Isaiah 46. His foreknowledge of human sin is part of what it means to be Yahweh, I am. Therefore, I draw from 1 Samuel 15 that God does regret, but he does so in a way that does not compromise the completeness or perfection of his divine foreknowledge. We are not told how this works. One could suggest that the divine sorrow present in the regret at Saul's failure was already present in its peculiarly divine way when Saul was chosen in the first place. With God, there is a kind of regretting that is not like man's regretting. It is not prompted or guided by finiteness or sin. It is rooted rather in infinite wisdom. It is guided by perfect justice. God's real regret is meant to be contrasted with Saul's false regret. God's regret is real grief over real sin. Saul's regret is false grief, worldly grief that is only concerned with his loss of title, kingdom, reputation, and honor. Church, if we are to have a revival individually and corporately of the greatness of our salvation, the greatness of our sin must lead to real regret. Great grief over our sin and the judgment we deserve. Again, Lord, have mercy on us in this. 
2 Corinthians 7.10 says that there is worldly grief that produces death. This is the grief that Saul had. Worldly grief that produces death. But Paul also says there is godly grief that produces repentance. That leads to salvation and a real freedom without regret. See, the gospel says this. We don't need to minimize our sin. We should not minimize our sin. When the Holy Spirit gives the gift of repentance, bow down before him and thank him. Don't try to alleviate the consequences. Don't try to Teflon or linoleum your way through the Holy Spirit's necessary work of revival to bring a proud heart to humility, to expose self-rule and offer gospel rule. Good news, where in your sin that can lead to repentance, leads to salvation, where there can actually be, praise God, a point where you can say, God saved me out of that. Therefore, I mourn my sin, but I do no longer live in that regret. Do you get me? No longer holding on to the memory of what you have done, but saying that even that memory is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. To which you may say, but if this is in my heart, worldly grief versus godly grief, what does true repentance really look like? Sorry, there are just too many good things to share with you that helped me this week. Would you hear this from Tim Chester? Three characteristics of true repentance. An end to excuses. We face up to our guilt and responsibility rather than offering excuses for our sin. When someone's talk about sin is punctuated with excuses, there's no true repentance. Second, it's a movement towards God. Repentance is turning back to God. It is more than frustration or shame with oneself. It is more than a concern for one's reputation with others. It is a Godward orientation. When someone talks about their shame or frustration but leaves God out of the picture, there is not true repentance. An end to excuses, a movement towards God, and a movement that results in action. True repentance leads to a change of life because that life is now fully open to the refreshing revival waters of the Holy Spirit. When repentance does not lead to action, there is not true repentance. There is not a work of the Spirit that is accomplishing renewal. A real gospel must have real judgment and real regret. But praise God, it's also real salvation. Saul was a fearful king who led a trembling people. Did you catch that? 
They hid in caves, holes in the ground, cisterns. They would hide in wells. People followed him trembling. Why? Because they were under the judgment of God. Saul was their king. And his sin, like Adam, affected them. So here we have seen the rise and fall of a king. But in chapter 14, we also saw the fall and rise of a faithful prince who fearlessly saves. Jonathan and his armor bearer crawl down into the two tooth crags, crawling down into the metaphorical jaws of death. But then Jonathan ascends from where he has descended. He says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. If the Lord is in this, nothing can stop the Savior. Do all that is in your heart, then, his armor bearer says, knowing that in Jonathan's heart was the Holy Spirit. Wholehearted. It's very possible that when Saul heard the first pronouncement, Judgment from Samuel, the Lord has a prince. He didn't even know David. But he had just seen Jonathan defeat the garrison of the Philistines. Do you see how his attitude towards Jonathan changes? This guy was ready to kill his son. Because he thought his son was going to take his throne. But in Jonathan, we see that he's been given this gracious gift of wholehearted faith that his armor bearer trusts. Great victory was given to them as they led out in faith. Even the earth quaked and the Lord saved Israel on that day. This faithful prince, then by his father's rash vow, was brought to the brink of death under the curse of the law. But he emerges without a hair of his head falling to the ground for the people ransomed him. People here at Edgewater, can you hear this? There is a greater prince than Jonathan. Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Son of God. Though we are a fearful people under our own self-rule, he descended to earth and succumbed to the jaws of death at the cross to secure our salvation. He gave himself as a ransom for all to free us from the fear of death and judgment. Guaranteed. By his resurrection. A great salvation requires a great savior. Nothing can stop the savior. So obey him who is the perfect sacrifice. Trust him with your life. This is how great our salvation is. The savior that God sends wholeheartedly sacrificed himself to save half-hearted sinners like me and you. And Christian he continues to save us. Hebrews 10, 16 says, I will put my law on their hearts. Hebrews 5, 9 through 10 says, this is an eternal salvation, never ending. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 says that Christ will save to the uttermost because he continues to intercede for as Samuel promised Israel in his farewell, Christ will never stop to pray for you.
you and you and you. All of us who are in Christ, he continues to delicately, purposefully, intentionally pray, preserving us for himself. Nothing can stop the Savior. So obey him who is our perfect sacrifice. Let me just say a couple of things to bring this home for us a little bit. Faith in this one Savior who was sent to offer himself for us is a salvation that continues. It's an eternal salvation. So what does it look like, Christian, to trust him today? To trust that his death and resurrection and ascension count for you. That you are one of Christ's. Perhaps it means that though you think you can make some common sense out of some choices you want to make, the Holy Spirit is saying, pump the brakes. Wait on me. Wait on the Lord. As we talked about last week, trust the Lord at all times. Pour out your soul before him. Wait on him. It may mean in the waiting, he's pulling back the linoleum. He's got to get down to the hardwood. Have you ever stripped linoleum before? As I have? It's a long, hard process. Let the Holy Spirit do his work in your heart. Be patient and wait on the Lord. Perhaps you need to get active, not in a Saul sort of activity, but in a... In Christ, my great prince... I'm his armor bearer and I trust his heart. Jesus, where are you taking me? I have not entrusted myself to you in a risky endeavor of faith in maybe a long time. Pray about that this week. What is the Lord saying to you not to presume upon him, but to say, Jesus, I entrust you with my life with my safety, with my money, with my time, with my vocation, with my kids, with my marriage, with my witness in high school, with my... And say simply what the armor bearer said to Jonathan, do all that is in your heart. I am with you, heart and soul. To which I would add this one last thing. In Christ, we go with him into the fray. There are so many people trapped under the rubble of sin, dying. And as a 16-year-old told me in my office a couple of weeks ago, if this is true, we have the greatest news in history. And he was right. Would God give us the grace to open up our mouths and our lives to walk in the light of Christ not hiding in caves or cisterns anymore but following our prince dying to ourselves knowing that resurrection is already ours in him what does he want you to risk this week in relationships in what you might say that could potentially break a relationship 
Will you trust him? If God is in it, nothing can stop the Savior. Take that step of faith and see if he won't make the earthquake. Let's pray. God, by your grace, would you help us in this? Help us to walk in faith, secure in your Son, full of your Spirit. If there are, these, if there are those today who are still spiritually dead, would you give them the gift of new life? Give them rebirth today. Would you give us conversations this week with people who are dead and, oh God, we would ask that if salvation belongs to you as it does, if the Lord is with us, you would make the earthquake. Bring dead hearts back to life. Thank you, our resurrected King. Amen.